Hello, Cinephile fans. This is John Roca. This week on The Cinephile, Steve Morris and I will be talking about Punch Drunk Love, a 2002 American comedy drama from the great Paul Thomas Anderson. This one's starring Adam Sandler. That's right. Adam Sandler, Emily Watson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Luis Guzman, and Mary Lynn Raska. This tells a fantastic tale of a very unusual romance between uh, Adam Sandler's Barry Egan and Emily Watson's Lena Leonard. We get uh, puddings. Uh, we get healthy choice. We get mattresses. We get sex hotlines. Uh, but most of all, we get true love in one of the most unusual packages that you're ever going to see over 90 minutes from the great Paul Thomas Anderson. This is one of my favorite films. And uh, I say this on the podcast, but I'll say it in the preview as well. I firmly believe that Punch Drunk Love and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind absolutely changed how filmmakers approached movies about romance uh, going forward from this from that point on in films and may have helped usher in the end of the romantic comedy and uh, uh, brought in a new approach to romance and love that dealt from a more realistic place about how tough love can be, how tough relationships can be, uh, uh, but they're worth it in the end. So look for that this week. On the Cinephiles, Punch Drunk Love from me and Steve Morris. And the short this week is on the European Super League, of all things. Steve Morris reached out to me and said, I want to talk about this with you, mostly because I don't know if I understand fully what this is all about, what the genesis of this was. So we sit down to have a fun conversation about that uh, on the for the patrons of the Cinephiles uh, this week as well. And if you want to buy... Uh, 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 Punch Drunk Love, you can go to www.cine-files.net and see all uh, the links there to buy the movie or any of the movies we've spoken about there on the website as well. So that's this week. Punch Drunk Love on the Cinephiles. I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine. Also, I'm wearing a suit today because I had a very important meeting this morning and I don't have a crying problem. Okay. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, California, and uh, a lover of Paul Thomas Anderson movies. That's what I can tell you. I really think he is just a true genius. Yes. Maybe when he fir- we first started seeing his films and people started making those comparisons, we, we might have said <laughs> that a comparison to Scorsese or... You know, that's not warranted. He's not there yet. I really right. think I really think it is warranted. He is 100% an iconic kind of filmmaker. Certainly one of the you could argue one of the premier filmmakers of this current generation, if not the premier filmmaker of this current generation, 
um, in terms of his ability to marriage, marry the old school styles that influenced him with the new approach to filmmaking. Uh, and this film is like a microcosm of that. So, yeah, ab- absolutely under, uh, agree with you, Steve. And, of course, I haven't actually mentioned the name of the film we're doing, <laughs> although you probably knew it from the preview and the and looking at the title. But we're talking about Punch Drunk Love. And this happens to be a Patreon pick. Mm. Matthew Gromlich is the person who decided that Punch Drunk Love is a movie that had to be done on the cinephiles. <laughs> and, Matthew, I would like to hear why you picked this incredible film. This is Matthew from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I love Punch Drunk Love. Outside of the gorgeous cinematography, the characteristic way PTA uses color and light, this is a story close to my heart. In the seemingly inescapable gravity of depression, we clamor in some broken way to whichever opportunities offer us some glimmer of freedom and happiness. Bizarre from the outside, but singular to the tormented. In the end, a single loving person can make all the difference, can see past the dysfunction and pain, rescuing us and giving us the most sacred of gifts, hope and purpose. Also, it's just satisfying to see Adam Sandler whoop ass for the woman he loves. Excited to hear your exploration of this film, and thank you for all of your hard work. Okay, Matthew, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Matthew. Thanks for your words about why you love this movie. Hell yeah. John, I know this film is very special to you, and I would love to hear how you first came to it. Oh, I mean, I, I, I was a Boogie Nights fan, so I immediately was on the Paul Thomas Anderson train. Uh, and then really, enjoy- I was one of those people, those uh, film people that defended Magnolia like crazy. So when this trailer came out for this movie, I was immediately in love with it. And the tr- just the trailer alone from the uniqueness of the the of us, Adam Sandler doing a drama. Uh, Emily- I had a massive crush on Emily Watson since Breaking the Waves. And then you combine that with this kind of place I was at in my life where I was two years into L.A. and I was this kind of idealistic, romantic person uh, who still believed in his dreams to a degree Hmm. of what I had at the time, uh, but also felt that I was always out of step with the mainstream, out of step with uh, regular people, out of step with, quote unquote, normalcy. And this film and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I felt were was this change in cinema and the death of romantic comedy. I thought these two films signaled the end of this uh, idealistic approach to romance in movies and signaled a real honest approach to how difficult relationships can be, how difficult love can be, even when you care for someone so deeply. You have to kind of factor in flaws and all. Uh, and it isn't just having a, uh, you know, wrinkle on your forehead or whatever. Flaws can be much deeper than that. <laughs> I really loved it for that. And when I saw it, I was just transfixed. It's one of the most intoxicating 90 minutes of cinema that I've ever experienced. It's funny. Ju- just on the Magnolia thing, mm. I think Magnolia is a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. I could so remember seeing it in the theater. And my only criticism of it was... It felt like it was building to a climax for an hour. <laughs> you know, it's going to be like, okay, here it is. Everything's going to, nope, nope. I guess that's not it. Oh, wow. Now this has got to be it. Oh my God. This is so, nope, nope. We're going to keep going. Like, <laughs> just like, it's, I felt very uh, messed with. And then <laughs> you you're know. like, frogs? 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 <laughs> what the hell is going on? But the, you know, the, you, I can't fault the directing. I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant. And, yeah. and the same is true of this film. Um, uh, for me, I saw it in the theater. I was, as you said, transfixed, mm-hmm, disturbed, mm-hmm. confused, blown away, 
Mm-hmm. And that was the only time I ever watched it. I saw it in the theater in Los Angeles in, you know, when it came out. Yeah. And then I've been watching it. I've actually kind of watched it a few times because to kind of try to get my head around like, well, what is this movie? Like, what right. is it? What does it mean? Cause it's pretty complicated. And it's so funny. Last week, uh, we did 13 assassins where I had minimal pre-production. Mm. Same thing. I have I basically, I, I couldn't find very much information at all <laughs> about the production. I found lots of people analyzing the meaning of the film. Yeah, certainly. But, but very few. And I tried not to read any of those, mm-hmm. but very few that actually talked about how this got made. These are the only things I know. And I'll tell you what they are. Mm-hmm. Number one, after Magnolia, uh, PTA wanted to make a 90 minute film. Yep. Number two, he wanted to work with Adam Sandler. Yes. That's it. That's really all I got. And, <laughs> and that Joanne Seller, who's his producer, just was completely against the Adam Sandler thing. Why mm. would you, why would you, this serious, profound director, want to work with, you know, happy, Happy Madison. Like, yeah. why would you want to do that? Um, or, you know, that, that, you know, the water boy is going to star in the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm sure the same conversation was had with Michelle Gondry when he was going to cast Jim Carrey and Tornos Lunch of the Spotless Mind. And probably even more recently, Darren Aronofsky, when he was going to cast Mickey Rourke as the wrestler. People, you know, I'm right. sure people were like, no, like Rourke is box office poison. He's doing straight to DVD stuff. But, you know, filmmakers like this, uh, Steve, operate on a completely different wavelength and they see things that we don't see until they show them to us. And then we go, oh, my God, I can't think of anyone else that would be as perfect in this film as Adam Sandler is in Punch Drunk Love. Well, and what's so weird is that just recently there's an Adam Sandler performance, which is an mm. intense, dramatic. So, you know, Good point. Yep. Paul Uncut Thomas Jones. Anderson's he saw this thing in him decades ago that yeah. nobody else could have seen. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Would you like to get into the film? Let's do it. So right away, we see uh, PTA's incredible color control. Mm. We open with Adam Sandler in that blue suit in (laughs) front of a blue wall at a desk in a corner. And right away, the images are strong. Yeah, yeah. The symbolism of him being alone, being separated out from the rest, uh, being in a corner, all of it just giving you a vibe of what this guy's inner life is like. And he's on the phone and he's having some conversation about purchases and miles and coupons and prizes. And he says, he says, do you realize that the monetary value of this promotion and the prize is potentially worth more than the purchases? It's such an odd thing that that this is what the movie's about. And I keep thinking about what is the symbolism? Is there symbolism here in this idea of coupons for miles and the value being different from what is listed in the small print. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think a lot of it stems to show you that this guy is smarter than you actually think. So, you don't, you can't dismiss him as just an uh, anxious overreactionary person. Um, I also think it's fascinating that, you know, a little bit of elbow grease can lead to a lifetime of enjoyment. Mm. So I think that's a part of it as well, because of the effort he has to make to get these, uh, uh, coupons and like he says later in the film it's a million it could get a million miles of travel and I'll never have to pay again for anything well and I also think it's sort of the finding value in something that you thought might be valueless yeah you know yeah because I think that is Barry's character is there's this person mm-hmm. that's got a lot to him that it, you don't understand from the surface you know yeah I also um, think there's a subconscious thing here too real quick Steve a subconscious thing too 
where, you know, when we're going through transition periods in our life, and certainly Barry, would, unbeknownst to him, but he senses something is wrong, is going through a transition period, and you want to get the hell as far away from where you currently are at as you possibly can. And yeah. this hmm. is kind of a thing that would allow him to do that. So he hangs up, you know, walks towards the camera, pans with him into the dark, and then opens this big rolling door into the daylight, steps outside. It looks like it, this is shot at dawn. Mm-hmm. We're at some kind of a sort of industrial wasteland places where there are a bunch of different odd businesses in these places. <laughs> I don't know how many of these kind of places you've been to. There, there are a lot of them. In the valley. In, yeah. 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 The camera pushes towards the gate at the street, which is his POV. And there's a beautiful sunrise. And suddenly there is a car crash. Yeah. Out of nowhere. And the car is red, red and blue pay a huge, huge, important thing in this movie. The color control is fantastic. And then a cab pulls up. A door slides open and out comes this weird piano organ thing, which is called a harmonium. What the hell is this? This this to me is like the frogs. It's like this completely bizarre thing happens. We have no idea why. We never find out why. Life is random. And I also think the symbolism here is perfect. Of course, the red car, you know, she's coming. She shows up in a red dress a little bit later to essentially shatter his life uh, in a good way. And the harmonium is essentially kind of like um, just this uh, symbol of uh, joy or peace. Uh, amongst the amongst the madness, there is this thing that will bring you joy or can bring music into your life, you know? So a harmony. Yeah, right. A harmony. Well, th- this is the thing that started occurring to me. And, and you know, there I think there are a million different ways to interpret some of the things in the sure, movie. Sure. But the thing that I started thinking about was, is any of this real? You know, like, is it all, is it all a fantasy? Is it all just symbolic? Is it all, you know, because these things happen, you know, <laughs> and they're so just odd. Um, right. And anyway, he's back in his office. He's back on the phone. He's talking about breakage. I love that mm-hmm. he wants to give this guy his home number in case he <laughs> wants to call him after hours. Desperate need to connect. Yeah. Yeah. He's so, because... This is a man that is incredibly lonely. Okay. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Which, by the way, bye-bye is something that's going to come back later on. (laughs) And again, he heads outside and he looks down the street and here comes a car. And now we're going to meet Emily Watson. Yeah. And she's wearing pink-ish, not red, but basically Mm -hmm. red is her color. Just as blue as his. Is it okay if I leave my car, you think? The mechanic's not open yet, and she wants to leave her car to be fixed and asks if he could watch the car. And, of course, later we find out that this is all an elaborate ruse mm-hmm. to meet him. Yeah. She's so lovely and mm-hmm. charming in this film. Yeah, she's exquisite. And I love even the little details, like she has a hard time getting the key off the key ring. Mm-hmm. And, again, this goes to a direct – it's those weird directorial choices of it could be easy to get it off the key ring or it could be hard. Right. And having it be hard humanizes her – and allows her to connect with him just a little bit longer. Yeah. Her nervousness and his nervousness kind of start to connect here. And, you know, she said in an interview, a written interview with her, she said that Paul Thomas Anderson told her to do nothing, absolutely nothing through the whole movie, which was a real struggle for her because she was at the stage in her career where she really wanted to show what she could do as an actress. But I think Paul felt 
your beautiful, your porcelain, your um, natural energy is the, the audience is going to gravitate to you already. So you saw the way she handles herself throughout the movie. And this is a great introduction. And of course, a little on the nose with her giving the key to his, to him, like the key to her heart and stuff like that's kind of a little on the nose of symbolism. But you get what it's going for and you get what's going to happen here. So it's great. The do the do nothing direction. That is a really odd direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what I think what I think he's doing is it's it's like a Rorschach test is that yep. he wants the audience to fill in who she is. Yep. He doesn't want her to tell us who she is. You right. know, right. You know, there's this moment where she says, maybe I'll see you later. <laughs> maybe I'll see you later is not what you say to the person that you gave your key to, to give it to the mechanic. Right. If I'm just giving you my key, so you give it to the mechanic, I'm never going to see you later. Right. right. Maybe you see, maybe I'll see you later is flirtatious. Yeah. It totally um, is. And she walks away and he drinks his, you know, iced coffee or whatever it is he's got in that you know, container. But you hear, I think it's got ice in it because it makes a strange noise as mm-hmm. he walks around. And then what you hear is like, that's the percussion is the noise of the ice in his cup is the percussion. And by the way, there's no music in this film until we have music. So that's the closest we get to music. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment he's inside and he slowly looks back outside, peeking out. We see his eye just come to the outside of the wall. Mm-hmm. Is he looking for her? Well, I mean, he looked, she looked back at him. After mm. she gave him the keys to her co- and then she caught him and he was looking and then he went right to his coffee. So, yes, looking for her, but also maybe just like you just said, Steve, maybe he thinks it's not real. Maybe he also thinks it's kind of a weird vision or fantasy or dream or whatever. Uh, and the way he kind of, you know, kind of skulks around the corner uh, maybe makes you feel that way, too, that he doesn't know if it was real at all. Well, and of course, the other thing that he's looking at is the harmonium. Yes. And he walks out to it and we have basically a shot from every angle mm-hmm. you know of him looking at this this wide shot profile shot the opposite side profile shot back out to the wide shot and then almost out of nowhere this truck that has by the way blue and red words on it blue and red <laughs> is just everywhere just blasts by in such a startling way mm-hmm. and i think when you first see it you think it's hit the harmonium In fact, it hasn't hit the harmonium because Adam Sandler has picked it up and is running in a way that only Adam Sandler can run back to his uh, business. Yeah, it's it's great. Emily Watson, Shalina shows up. Car repair. She needs repair. Key to his heart. Mm. He runs over, grabs the thing. It's about to get run over by a massive truck, which, you know, he uh, he could have lost this opportunity if he hadn't taken this chance to go get it. He grabs it out of the way from this truck and he desperately runs with it because he knows there's something here. He can't figure out what it is, but it's he's desperate to have it and to explore it. I don't know. There's just a lot being laid in such brilliant ways by Paul Thomas Anderson without a word being said after Lena leaves. You know what's so interesting? I hadn't thought about it quite this way, but Mm. this is a guy that needs purpose. You know, at the end, what is going to make him come together is a threat to the woman he loves. That's what's going to make. And at this moment, there is a threat to this harmonium that he saves. So it's almost like a a microcosm, like a small event or a foreshadowing of what he's going to do later in the film. Yep. Um, 
By the way, the, the, the lens that they're shooting this as he's running towards camera with the harmonium is a very long lens. And that what long lenses do, we've talked about it lots of times on the cinephiles, they don't have a lot of size change. So if you're in a wide lens, something close to the camera will look huge and far away from the camera will look tiny. If you're in a long lens, something far away from the camera and close to the camera, they look about the same size. And what effect that has is that when you're running towards camera in a long lens shot, you don't. it almost looks like you're getting nowhere. And I am certain that uh, PTA was thinking of the famous shot in The Graduate where Dustin Hoffman is running towards mm. camera and he's running and running and running and running to that Simon and Garfunkel music. And it seems like he's getting absolutely nowhere. Good and point. that's what this feels like. He's running and running and running and running. And it's like he's not getting anywhere. <laughs> and as he runs, his cup drops. And again, even though there's no music, his feet are the percussion. The sound design is the percussion. And he's inside his office and he puts the harmonium up on a desk and he mm-hmm. looks around it and he touches the keys. So this is an This instrument was introduced by John Bryan, the composer mm-hmm. to Paul Thomas Anderson during Magnolia. Mm-hmm. He's like, I love this instrument. And they really talked about this. And that's why this instrument's in this movie, because the composer introduced it to the director. And one of the things they said about it is when it first takes an air, it sounds like a breath. Yeah. And so the idea was this is the breath of life that's <laughs> happening now. That makes so much sense. And John Bryan did the compo- uh, compose the score for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind as well. So oh, no really? Su- yeah. So no surprise that both of these films kind of have this vibe to them. I also feel like as a as a movie going public, we were in this place in the early 2000s. This kind of like, what's next? What are we going to do? What is love? You know, that's, that's a really good point. It's so funny. Like. From 97 to, to 2003 is a really interesting period mm. for film. Yes. A lot of changes yeah. in approach to relationships and love for sure. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, the way uh, scoring a movie usually works is you make the movie and then you give your cut to the composer and the composer scores the film. And obviously it's more complicated than that, but that's the basic order. John Bryan was on the set a lot and was composing as they go. And the way that they did it is so weird, but it's because part of it is Paul Thomas Anderson such a genius is he would go, they really talked about rhythms that yeah. the, the score is very rhythmic and he would go to, to PTA and say, what, what's the rhythm for this scene? And PTA would go, would hum it or like go, bada da, bada da, bada. And he would make a sound and, and, and John Bryan would go, okay. And he would write some music. And then particularly in these long shots, because yeah. we have a ton of long shots, uh, Anderson was listening to the music on headphones while watching the scene. Oh, wow. Which is a really weird thing to do. Oh, that seems so logical to me because it keeps you in the atmosphere of the scene you're directing. So maybe it gives you an instinct to have the scene go a certain way. I kind of love that idea. Well, certainly in silent film, they played music on the set all the time. What I actually wonder is a more technical thing, which is, mm-hmm. I need to be able to hear the actor's dialogue. Right, and so right. if I had oh, headphones right. on just listening to the music, I'm not hearing the dialogue. So what I wonder is if they had the sound guy pumping the the dialogue, the mics into a device that was then mixing it with the music so ah. that Anderson could hear both. It's possible. And I, or maybe he had the music in one ear and he had the dialogue in the other ear or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was the, that's how he kept the rhythm of the scenes going. And one of the ideas, too, of the music, and then we'll move on, but the music is fascinating. Yes, I love the music. Brian wanted the rhythms to feel random when it started. 
And then as you got more used to it, it became, you realized it wasn't random. Yeah. There is a hard cut. That big rolling door opens super, super bright light uh, comes in and in comes Luis Guzman. Yeah. I think this is my favorite movie for him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He does so much with so little. Oh, yeah. Like every shot, if you just watch him in the background, he is hilarious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And his first question is, why are you wearing a suit? I bought one. I thought it would be nice to get dressed for work, and I'm not exactly sure why. Tell me about this suit. What do you think about it? It's a to me. I think it feels like a suit of armor, right? I mean, he is uh, put the suit itself. It doesn't 100% fully fit him because it's not tailored. And you talk about the blue and the red. There's the symbolism there because he's wearing a red tie. If I'm right on that, I think so. And, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think to him, it symbolizes a way of like trying to change his life yet again, right? I'm going to wear a suit. Luis Guzman's reaction is like, why are you wearing a suit? And his sisters are going, why are you wearing a suit? Uh, so the whole time through the whole movie, a number of people ask him why he's wearing a suit. Uh, and to me, it just seems like he's t- he was probably wearing oversized shirt and jeans or oversized shorts and, uh, shorts and I'm sorry, oversized shirts and shorts to work. And this is like a way of trying to do something in some kind of, you know, way of his thinking to change his life. And so yeah. the suit kind of represents, I'm trying to elevate my life. I'm trying to upscale my life in some way. Um, and this is my clumsy attempt at it. I think there's a way, another way to interpret this film, mm. which there, there's just are many, mm-hmm. which is that even though Barry is an adult who owns his own business, yeah, this is a coming of age movie, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is this is him becoming an adult. And I think at the beginning of the movie, he, he kind of puts on the trappings of adulthood. Yeah. I'm going right. to wear a suit. Yeah. But he isn't yet an adult. I believe this is a small piano. It's not a piano. I got a piano at home. And he asks, why is it here? And I love the direction of this because uh, Adam Sandler is backing away towards camera and he's sort of yes. shifting left and right. And in this sort of uncomfortable way, and his answer is, I don't know. And the music is quietly building underneath his movements. As he moves backwards, you can hear the tone. You can hear the score, these beats of the score playing underneath as he moves left to right. It's like, and there's the title of the film. So yeah. it's, just, it's really deft how Paul choreographed this movie and how John Bryant's how he used John Bryant's score in certain moments to um, convey uh, uh, important sections of the movie. And we go into this color field for the first time, these odd colors, Hmm. dissonant sounds. We hear distantly a voice singing, which I think is our first tiny, tiny taste of he needs me, uh, which is going to come back later in the film. And then it resolves in this orchestral with harp sound. And then we cut to our guys who work with Barry sitting around a table. Mm-hmm. We have no idea what they're talking about. It ends up that this is a business of selling novelty plungers. Plungers, man, of all <laughs> things. But once again, what's the symbolism of plungers, Steve? It's to unblock a clogged toilet, right? <laughs> so he's going through his thing. Clearly, all the symbolism is there, you know. Um, and he starts getting calls from his sisters. <laughs> oh, God. These are the worst sisters in the history of cinema. The worst. 
if I was a, a, the only child, the only male child amongst all these sisters, I too would have anxiety and like issues connecting with the world and be a colossally fucked up kid. I, they are, they drove me insane. Uh, Steve, for sure. They are horrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, to be clear, he is also horrible. Well, right. But he seems to be the baby of the family. Yeah. So they clearly just destroyed this guy from birth. You know, it's awful. You know what they reminded me of in how it, it's t- totally, totally different movies. But mm. Margo Martindale in Million Dollar Baby oh. of just like you have this horrible uh, this family members that are just yeah stunningly awful. Yeah. Uh, and there's apparently a party. And rather than encouraging him to go to the party. Well, they are encouraging him to go to the party, but rather than doing it in any kind of a positive way, it's yeah. all. Hey, it's me. It's Rhonda. Are you going to this goddamn party? Tonight? Oh, hi, Rhonda. Yes, I am. All right, fine. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is going to happen multiple, multiple times. Yeah. And and the other thing that's going to happen multiple times in this movie is having to deal with many things at once. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to have this talk about his plungers with his guys, and he keeps getting these calls from his sisters about wow. this party. And clearly this is an issue, isn't it, Steve? Because clearly he has not shown up to parties when he said he's yeah. going to show up. And, and this is another thing, Steve. In 2002, how much were we having a conversation about anxiety or mental health or about this is almost a film ahead of its time. If this film had come out now, I think it would have gendered or engendered a number of very interesting conversations, think pieces about anxiety, about the effect of anxiety, about mental health, about, you know, relationships with someone with anxiety, uh, uh, panic attacks, those kinds of things. Cause he's having that throughout this movie and it's so ahead of its time in how it is putting it out there and confronting it and not judging it more than anything else. And and I found that to be so fascinating watching it this time around. Well, I, I think that's completely, completely right. That's what so much of what this movie is about. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I started thinking is that this movie is so subjective in the way that it presents things. Yeah. It might very well be that what is happening is exactly what's happening. But what I think it's conveying is this is how it feels like to yes. Barry. Yes. You know, yeah. this is how he experiences it. And, and a lot of this has to do, I think, with pace, the feeling. And we're going to get to some scenes that are the, this off the charts. Yeah. There's a million different things hitting him at once. And he can't deal with any of them. No, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, love the, I love the sister where he says the word chat. And then she's just all over him oh. about the word chat. Chat. I'm just calling to make sure that you show up at this party tonight. Oh, yes, I will be there. Okay, fine. Then you get to go back to chatting with your precious customers, you fucking phony, chatty piece of shit. Okay, all right. I mean, what the fuck, man? I mean... This reminds me so much of The Sopranos. Remember whenever Janice tried to break out of being a part of that shitty-ass family? Tony would never let her. Tony would encourage her to get help, say she needed help. But the second Janice started actually climbing out of the madness of that family, Tony would do something to, to mess her up and to bring her back down again because he felt that she was trying to be better than him 
when she was changing herself and he couldn't deal with that so he would have to denigrate her the same thing i think probably happens in this family steve these women want him to be or these sisters want him to be different but the second he tries to be different or does something unusual or different they immediately absolutely put him on a cross and crucify him so they are they are the architects of this dude's situation and they never allow space for him to kind of climb out of it uh, because of their overbearing and terrible nature. And I'm sure a lot of people listening probably who have seen this movie or are listening to us now probably have family members like this and hate it to pieces. I totally agree. And it's this weird sort of, I want you to not be a piece of shit. Hello, piece of shit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, clearly Barry has problems. Yeah. And I, I think about this all the time. It's like, if you think he's a piece of shit, why do you want him at the party? Just stop dealing with him. Yeah. If, if, if there's no hope for this guy. Yeah. The plungers, John, have non-breakable handles. Or, or so we thought. <laughs> this is a silly question. So he, he says, this is, we've been working on this forever and have the non-breakable hammers. And then he hits it and it shatters. And he goes, this is one of the old ones. <laughs> was the plunger one of the old ones? Or was that the one with uh, no, those? No, I, I think there's one with the unbreakable handles. I think so too. <laughs> and another sister calls and we find out that in yeah. fact, he has seven sisters. Seven. Good God almighty. But the, what's interesting is he's talking to the sister and she asks him what he's doing. And he says, I'm on the talking on the phone to you. I'm standing. Mm-hmm. That is not what he's doing. He is looking at the harmonium. Yeah. Yeah. Her last line to him is don't puss out. <laughs> and he starts to play the harmonium. Another inspiration for John Bryan's composition was watching and Adam Sandler play the harmonium. Ah. Who obviously is, I don't know how, how well he plays piano, but he's obviously a musician. Yes. It's, it's funny. If you had told me when I first saw Adam Sandler on Saturday Night Live that 25 years later, I would be describing him as a musician, <laughs> I would have been surprised. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now we get to meet the sister that we're going to come to know the most. This is Elizabeth Mary Lynn Rajskup. Yeah. She's great in this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's great in so many things. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, 24. Just a great nerdy sister. Yeah. And so it works so well for what he's because she does care about him, but she also has those patterns of antagonizing him as as well. Yeah. It's it's like it's like she feels it's her sisterly duty to care about him. Yeah. And she also hates him and has no hope for him. Right. Right. And she, of course, is asking if he's going to the party tonight, mm-hmm. but she came by to talk to him about something in particular, which is she's got this friend from work. She's really cute. She's really cool. And she was thinking about bringing him to the party. This is where I think Sandler is that PTA did see something in him mm-hmm. that would work for this because the, like the way he delivers this line. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Is classically Adam Sandler from any of his comedies, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he says, I don't do stuff like that. And she says, you don't really do anything. Yeah. And the whole time this is happening, she is backing him physically into a corner. She's yeah. 
she is like talking him as he tries to pull away she go keeps on him uh and there's such a judgment behind everything she's doing so you can see once again he's just feels like he's trapped he feels like he's trapped he can't get out of this shitty existence but he wants to get out of it i feel like i would be a little tense and i don't think i'd act like myself no that's kind of your fault yeah of course well and it's so you know what you know what just occurred to me is i think there are elements of barry that are you and there are elements of Barry that are me. <laughs> and they're very different. Let me guess which one's me. Let me guess which one's you. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sure I'm the guy shattering the windshield, shattering the windows. <laughs> I, I, I I think yes, that's that's what I thought was you. <laughs> not you, not you now, but maybe right. maybe old Roca and the guy who is worried about acting like himself at the party, that's me. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um because it's such a, it's, that line makes perfect sense. I, I feel like I'd be tense and I don't think I'd act like myself. Yeah. And of course, people have said to me, well, that's kind of your fault. You know, <laughs> it's like, no shit. <laughs> Obviously, it's my fault. It yeah. doesn't change the, it doesn't change the fact that I can have social anxiety when I'm at a party, you know? Right. How about a little understanding? How about a little understanding? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then he says, there's a, there's an outside chance I'm not even coming tonight. <laughs> <laughs> But she knows this. She knows how to turn around his logic. She's like, great, then she can come. It won't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, and because he's got to renew his gym, gym membership. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing she says to him is just trying to be your friend, Barry. Yeah. I don't think that's what she's doing. Right. Let's go to this party. Why not? Mm-hmm. The first thing that happens is oh. he comes in and hears them making fun of him. Yep. On the past. Yeah. This is all so terrible. And it is made more terrible later on. Ron used to call him gay boy all the time. That's gay boy. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. And he goes out and he comes back in, which I actually think is kind of the classy move to not actually try to walk in right in the middle of them saying horrible things about him. I thought it was his OCD, but maybe you're right. Maybe oh, he is walking in like hesitating or whatever. Uh, it, it totally could be. And rather than saying, oops, we were talking about you and shutting the fuck up, they say, Remember we used to call you gay boy? You'd get all mad? What's that? We used to call you gay boy. Remember, you'd be fine. And then we'd call you gay boy. You'd just freak out. Horrible. Families are terrible, ladies and gentlemen. They can be quite terrible. Like, even if you think the reason that the person got mad had to do with their immaturity and they've probably grown Mm -hmm. a lot and they probably wouldn't get, you still don't call them the thing that made them mad. Exactly. Also, really, don't call anybody gay boy. We were calling you gay, and you got so mad you threw the hammer through the sliding glass yeah. door. You remember? I don't remember that. Yes, you do. We were calling you gay boy, and you got so mad. They ask about the suit. Someone, one of them, wants to know if he's using the dandruff shampoo that they oh, gave him, which clearly means he's got something uh, on his, uh, yep. uh, you know, on his hair or whatever on his shoulders. Um, it's all about things that are wrong with him. Yeah, right off the bat. Yeah. Yep tells him to say hello to the brothers-in-laws and he tries to do, you could totally see him doing the manly handshake. Yeah. You know, like I'm trying to present this, you know, identity to these other guys. How's work? This is very food. Thank you. What's very food? (laughs) Which there are a couple of these sort of weird, him saying the wrong thing things. He asks if uh, his sister's friend is here. It's like, nope, you're off the hook. Couldn't make it. And after, you know, a little talk about the gym membership, we hear, come on, gay boy, it's time to eat. Yeah. 
And the sister walks out of frame, leaving him alone in the frame as he's reacting to that moment. And it's just so hurtful. And it just, you know, it makes me angry. My blood is boiling at this moment. Um, And then we cut to the family and the kids and everyone going to this wide, flat shot of them all sitting down at this rectangular table. And then there is this huge noise of shattering glass. And we cut to Barry breaking all the windows. (laughs) And we hear, the last thing we hear is, What the fuck is your problem? Fucking retard, Barry! They take no ownership of the emotional destruction they do on this guy. And when he unleashes it in a way of trying to reclaim some semblance of power in that that, uh, situation, um, they immediately go even deeper into uh, making fun of him or deeper into calling him names. So don't let don't let it be fooled, ladies and gentlemen. Both genders are pretty fucking terrible to people sometimes. Just want to make it very, very clear. Of course, and- every I, all all humans have the ability to be horrible. Yes, quite. And horrible. I certainly do not see breaking someone's windows as a socially acceptable reaction to. Uh, the situation no but i understand it yes right exactly (laughs) well it's funny too that what what you know there's this obviously the hammer story of him breaking this glass door i mean that's what this is is that barry gets to barry holds in his anger and holds in his anger until he cannot hold his in his anger and then his anger comes out and you can imagine if barry was a little more quote-unquote uh aware of his uh, emotions and stuff I'm sure he has stories, embarrassing stories about those sisters and the shit they've endured. And I wonder how they would feel if he turned around and started making fun of them for some of the stuff they did growing up or some of the moments that really were embarrassing for them. I bet they'd immediately get even more upset and say, why are you bringing that up? But they think they're being so innocent in going after this guy. It's crazy. Let's have a conversation with Walter, the dentist. <laughs> this is one of the husbands. I think this is Elizabeth's husband. Yeah. And it, we're in like a 50-50 shot. So they're just facing each other. And he apologizes for the window thing. By the way, I should say that this is another Saturday Night Live guy. Mm-hmm. This is Robert Smeagol, one of the great writers in Saturday Night Live history, I would say. Mm-hmm. And the voice of Triumph, the comic dog. Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you something because you're a doctor, right? Yeah. I don't like myself sometimes. Can you help me? And I love the response. Barry, I'm a dentist. What kind of help do you think I can give you? (laughs) And Barry says, I just don't have anybody else I can talk to about things confidential you know with a doctor i don't want my sisters to know okay it's so interesting because we're going to have two things that are supposed to be kept confidential in this movie Mm -hmm. and this is one of them and both of those things will be betrayed what exactly is wrong i think this next line might be the line of the movie i don't know if there is anything wrong because i don't know how other people are what do you think that line means but i think it's him in a nutshell uh, it's him. He's aware that he's different. He's aware that he's unusual. Um, and in that moment, that's what he's saying to him. I don't know what it looks. I don't know how other people are. I have no. I can't live in the skin of a normal person because I don't understand what the quote unquote term normal means. 
and I see other people who are considered normal and I don't have the instinct to act the way they do. He's basically a very strong introvert, Barry is. And so that's what he's saying. I don't understand the normal things that people do because they don't make sense to me at all as normal. I think there's some level on which all of us feel this way to different degrees of just, I don't know how other people are. Like, I don't know, John, I don't know what your internal life is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know what it feels like to be a, a person, you know, and, and I, you know, and this is, again, it goes back to like me at the party watching a whole bunch of people who I know or like, or don't know chatting away and having fun. And I go, I don't know. I don't understand, you know, right, right. like how that seems so easy because it, from looking at other people from the outside, they, yeah. everybody seems to be going through their life, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, almost like they know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I think that line is so profound. And then the next moment, man. I sometimes cry a lot for no reason. And then he just bursts into tears, sobbing, covers his face. And Spiegel, our dentist, has no idea what to do. (laughs) Doesn't comfort him in any way. No. And he just sobs into his hands and walks away. Yeah. Apologize. Yeah. Um, I think that scene is just so profound and sad. And I mean, it, well, and this is the thing too. His sisters ostensibly think that they want to help him. Right. All they do is insult him and make things worse. And then he actually reaches out for help, exposes himself. I don't know. Has he ever said anything like this to anybody ever? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think, think so either. And, yeah. But once again, we're catching him at a time in his life where he needs to make a change. And so he's doing things that he wouldn't normally do uh, out of desperation because he knows something has to change because nothing feels right. We're at a grocery store. And it's a flat space shot, which means that we're just looking at a flat wall. There's very little depth to it. And he's in the freezer section. He's moving left to right. Check out the color uh, control in this scene because it is dominated by red and blue. Mm -hmm. And then framed by the red and blue is the green of the healthy choice, you know, frozen dinners. Mm -hmm. And, And what's so interesting is that it's not that everything is red and blue and green. It's that it dominates the, the, the space visually yeah. and that the shades of red and blue and green are very, very specific mm-hmm. so that every single item in that grocery store in that aisle was picked and placed there for a reason. <laughs> um, and he's looking at healthy choice frozen dinners, sees that an ad for frequent flyer miles, sees that it's a dollar 79 and the camera moves with him as he goes to the aisle, we see his POV of healthy choice soup. He puts it back. He sees someone watching him. (laughs) He goes a little faster and he's muttering to himself. What am I looking for? Tell me, talk to me. And he stops at the pudding Mm -hmm. and again, feels someone watching him and it's someone out of focus. And what color are they wearing? Red Red dress. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's her. Oh, you know what? I think, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. So she's stalking him. Essentially. Yeah. We're going to have to, as we go farther along, 
do some analysis on on Lena. And <laughs> what, why is she doing this? I think she's uh, she vibes on the same wavelength as him, and she's probably felt like you know every guy I date, I don't they don't understand me. I don't understand them. I think I've got a possibility of figuring this out, and then it ends up not being true. And that Barry is the first guy she meets that she actually understands uh, in an in an a uh, subconscious way in an instinctive way that could be something she would explore, you know, she, that works for her, so to speak. Well, it's also why I kind of go, there's a way to interpret this movie that it's a fantasy. Yeah. You know? Oh, sure. That the perfect woman is going to come along and she'll understand me and she'll even love the parts of myself that, that, I, that aren't good or that I don't love, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, he's clipping some coupons for the healthy choice products and as he moves the paper with the coupons, we see an ad for uh, a sex, you know, a sex ad in the personals. Mm. We're back at his apartment and he's calling that number. Hi, is this your first time calling? Yes, it is. Can I have your credit card number followed by the expiration date? And we find out that it's $2.99 for a half hour and $1.99 after that. That seems cheap. Oh, 2002. I, I guess. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a chart of the inflationary costs of uh, phone sex over time, yeah. but uh, yeah. Okay. And it's confidential. What do you mean? The information I give you, it's private, confidential. Of course. <laughs> Which of course is what he was talking to the dentist about. Yeah. Because he wanted to talk to a psychiatrist, but no, he's just going to talk to this sex worker. And she says it's completely confidential and it appears on the credit card as D and D mattress man. Right. And she asked for his credit card, gives it to her, asked for his social security number, mm. gives it to her, which, by the way, for those people out there, don't give someone your credit card, your home address, yeah. your social security number and your phone number. Yeah. That's a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> this scene is wonderfully awkward and embarrassing yeah. and funny. And they it's asked, sli- what- it's slightly titillating, too. Sure. Okay. And what kind of a girl would you like to talk to? I don't want anybody to know it's me, though. I don't want them to know my name, okay? Nobody will know your name. Okay, if you could tell them my name is Jack. You want her to call you Jack? Sure, I just I just don't want her to know it's me. Okay, that's Thank fine, you. Jack. I'm sorry. And he's sitting at a table, and there's a, such an odd camera move, mm-hmm. which is the camera moves to show the other side, the empty side of the table. Right. And this is an unmotivated camera move. There's nothing going on in the frame. Why do you think it shows the empty side of the table? Yeah, just to just to uh, accentuate his loneliness, accentuate his feeling of like, of uh, yeah, just loneliness basically because there's nobody in that chair. Why is that chair even there? Yeah, it just symbolizes that he has no one. Yeah, and there is a long, long, long wait <laughs> until the phone rings. Mm. Hello, this is back. It's like the food good thing, you yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know why it's here. This is Jack. This is Georgia. Hiya. Hiya. What are you doing tonight? And she keeps trying to make this a standard sex call. Asks what he's doing. She's doing well. Yeah, <laughs> sure. She's doing it's, really well. Yeah. So, Jack, are you stroking it? No. <laughs> she asks, uh, now I feel like I'm doing a sex call with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's with the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Really? Yeah, really. And I'm looking at my shaved pussy in the mirror. 
she just said she's wearing panties. Right. Oh, There's, now you're going to put down the logic here of whether she's. Well, no, no, I think it's, I actually think it's important okay. to the film because the lies are exposed really ah, early in this call. Great point. You know, and, you know, of course, you know, we can all assume that someone who is on the phone isn't doing the things that they say they're doing. They don't have the name they say they have. They aren't located where they're located and they don't look like what they say they look like. You know, do you want to know what I look like? doesn't matter. What do you mean? It doesn't matter. Well, I have no way of finding out, so it doesn't matter. I'm not lying to you, Jack. And again, she's trying to get it to the sex part of the conversation. Are you jacking off yet, Jack? No, I'm not. Do you ever? Sometimes, yeah, when I'm lonely. It's interesting that he says when I'm lonely. Right. And not when I'm horny or when I, you know what I mean? Or when I'm watching porn. Absolutely. This is a lonely guy. And then she says, and this is so important. So what do you do, Barry? He asked to be called Jack. Right. And the whole thing was they're not going to know who I am. Right, right. And she gives it away right here. That's why I say it's important that we plant a moment before that she's lying. Right. And then all the trouble comes from the fact that he has his own business and he wants to diversify. (laughs) And we know that his business is selling novelty plungers, which, by the way, he has a fairly big staff for for the novelty plunger business. Yes, he does. um, Have you ever seen a novelty plunger? I don't think so. I'm sure I've been in a bathroom in Vegas or some hotel where a novelty plunger existed, but I don't think I've ever noticed one in my life. I, I've never seen a novelty plunger that I can remember. <laughs> I think I would notice. Right. And, and it's funny when he says, I want to grow my business and I think I can get over that hump. We know this is a guy who isn't running a great business, who isn't mm-hmm. going to get over that hump in all likelihood, yeah. but she hears an up and coming rich guy with a huge business that's diversifying. And then as we get to the end of the scene, it finally gets to where she's trying to get it to go. Mm-hmm. And the camera moves off him as he's sitting doing what one would expect on a sex call. Uh, and then we cut to just later at night and uh, he claps his light off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you remember this moment in time where the, the clapper was the just clapper. Yeah. yeah. It's morning. The shot is framed in the hallway. We see Barry step into the frame to answer the phone. And it's Georgia calling again. You know, after a little bit of small talk, she says, remember last night I was talking, telling you about my apartment and my rent. This is so weird and really embarrassing for me. No. But, um, I was wondering if maybe you could help me out with some money. This is the, this is a horrible call. Yeah. These scams have been around for a long time, too. Of course. Absolutely. I, I, I'm sure I am sure that, you know, someone in the Middle Ages got their, their equivalent <laughs> of this call. And he's trying to be nice about it. And I think he even believes her on some degree at at this moment still. I'm sorry. Maybe I should call back and talk to your girlfriend. Maybe it'd be better to ask her for the money. And the camera is pushing in on him. The way way Paul Thomas Anderson moves the camera is just, I don't understand it. Like it's none of these shots would would have ever occurred to me to shoot this way. Hmm. And they're all beautiful and they're all just amazing. And then this is where it turns be really easy you know barry i have all your information i have your credit card information all of your okay, no stuff. thank you <laughs> back at work louise gooseman comes in and asks about the pudding yeah <laughs> and we hear it has something to do with frequent flyer miles 
And Luis, who I think genuinely cares about Barry. You should go on a trip. Yeah, no, thank you. So what do you want me to do with it? Why don't we just leave it there for now, that? Cancels his MasterCard, wants to find out if anyone has used it. They haven't yet. See, and this is a mistake. This is where it becomes a mistake, where Barry... Why are you cutting up the card? Why are you claiming that it was lost? Well, see, Barry's a liar, too. You know, Barry's not clean here either um, in this situation. Um, but why should I mean, he should I think he should cancel the card. Well, but yeah, but that rescinds the payment. He said that I lost the card. So mm. where's any payment? Blah, blah, blah. So that kind of reverses or cancels the charges to the sex phone operator. So if he doesn't do this, the sex, this whole thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman maybe doesn't pop off the way it does i i it, it never occurred to me that way I, I think it's true but that 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 isn't how i saw it because hmm. first of all we don't see him cancel any payments well he says i lost my card for right. a, for a day or two and then i found it again am i okay i would not want to have any charges blah, blah blah so clearly they haven't put the charge through mm. yet because that was just last uh. night so he knows what he's doing, but I think also, Steve, your instinct, I think, I imagine, is he's also afraid because they've called him. He's afraid they're going to use his car to do nefarious shit. So it yeah, makes I mean, sense to cancel it, but by the same token, he's also taking away money for a service that he received. If, if, you have, if someone gets your credit card number, your address, your phone number, and your social security number, my advice to all the cinephiles out there is cancel that credit card. Absolutely. Um, but your point is well taken that that might have pissed them off more if the 10 bucks or whatever it was that he spent on this because $2.99 for a half an hour and a dollar 99 after that. That's, I still think that sounds cheap. It is. We don't know how long they talked though. Sure. Yeah. But if you talk for 10 hours, that would be, I don't really feel like doing the math, but like $16. Oh, I see your point, but this is also a low rent son of a bitch. So he's going to fight out of principle for $16. And I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I don't mean. I, I can't yeah, wait to get to Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's so great in this movie. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, I love, by the way, when they decide to cut up the card, that it's cut, cut, like really, really fast. He goes outside and he comes back inside and trips. And, and I love in the trip that his cup breaks because it makes the fall look better. And then he just starts yelling. That shouldn't be there, Rico. I don't want to be a dick, but that could hurt somebody. It already did hurt somebody. It hurt me. Let's please move that. And then in comes his sister with Lena. He's wearing that goddamn suit again. I don't know why he's wearing that suit. He doesn't usually dress like that. And the thing is, is when normally when people privately criticize somebody else, they don't say the thing they just said privately to the person they're <laughs> criticizing. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you wearing that suit again? And they come walking in quickly. They're not coming in like normal people come into a business or family comes into a business. Like, you know, I don't want to, you know, I want to make sure everything's cool. And They just come pounding in. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think everything in this scene is like that. Yeah. Everything, yeah. the pace is picked up. I mean, this scene is going to get more and more tense and intense. <laughs> and that's part of the, the, the music is building in this. What's interesting. I can make a totally weird analogy. The, mm. the rhythm isn't not one that you can kind of get a handle on. Yeah. Like you don't like yeah. get into this groove. It never goes where you think it's going to go. And yeah. I remember, uh, you know, the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. Yeah. 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 When you go in, when you're waiting in line at the very beginning, I don't know if it's st still there, but there was like a, a, a motor, like a generator that was running. 
but the generator kept speeding up and slowing down and almost sounding like it was going to die. And then it would catch. And what, and it was unsettling because you could never get into the rhythm. Like it didn't, it, it never became background yeah. because it was never had a consistent rhythm. And I feel like this music, it, it doesn't let me rest. You know, <laughs> it just keeps startling me. This is Lena. She's a good friend of mine from work. We were in the neighborhood and she had to pick up her car and we're getting breakfast before we go in. So did you want to go? We're going to go eat. Let's go. This is the least inviting invitation I've ever heard. Hmm. Does she want him to come with them? Oh yeah, of course she does. Yeah. Because she wants to have them meet. I don't think she does. What? I think. Why would she bring Lena in and ask him to go eat if she doesn't want him to go eat? Because her friend, because Lena asked her to. Uh, I, We'll have to disagree on that and agree to disagree on that one. Well, I think she has, well, let me put it a different way. I think she has incredibly mixed feelings about setting Lena up, her friend Lena up. Oh, yeah. I I don't. I think she absolutely wants to because she said, I'm going to bring her. I'm going to bring her. And you don't do anything. You need to do something. So she's determined to get him with somebody because she has this idea that maybe getting with a woman will fix Barry, even though they don't realize that it's those seven women that have fucked Barry up. So well, I think she's determined to get him to, to be with somebody. And some sisters are like that. You know that. Here's, here's what I think. I think she thinks her, her brother is a total freak. Mm-hmm. And I think she does want to fix him and everything you just said. But setting your friend up with someone who you think is a total freak, freak with crazy anger issues is not something you necessarily feel good about. Okay. Because there are lines later on that we're going to get to. Well, we'll, we'll continue to discuss this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we'll agree, but we'll continue to discuss it. We don't have to agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it's she doesn't even give him chances to answer. You know what I mean? You don't want to come eat with us? And before he can answer the call, she goes, what's all that pudding? Just like I said, I can't settle with the music. Barry yeah. can never focus on one thing. Well, in this scene, she has ADD as well. She mm. doesn't even know. She probably is undiagnosed ADD. What's with the harmony? What's with the pudding? What's with this? What about like, what, wh- why are you here? What do you want? But it's like all these little different things. Uh, and she's just like, you know, asking him all these questions. And of course, who's on the phone, but Georgia, you canceled your credit card. I need you not to cancel your credit card. And I need you to up your limit. Okay. This is making me very uncomfortable. I need help. Should I just ask your girlfriend? Maybe I should just call back and talk to your girlfriend. Have a go. You said you did. I know, but I don't. You lied to me. His sister's right there. He's looking at his sister. Well, sister comes into the office. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna hang up. You have no idea what could happen, okay, motherfucker. I, I just really. You're have making to go. a big. What do you think? She's cool, right? Again, we don't have any moment to rest because the sister is talking to him about Lena. No, no, I don't do things like that. You don't do anything. Why are you being scared? I'm not being scared. I just. You're going to rag on me if I do this. I'm not going to rag you. Why would I do this just to rag you? You're right. She has ADHD because she doesn't wait no. to let him discuss this thing. She moves immediately in. Can I ask you a serious question? Did you ask Walter to get you a shrink? Oh, God. Such a betrayal. Yeah. What a terrible thing to, to just blurt out there at his place at work, Steve. Yeah. Awful. Well, and the thing, too, is like there is the betrayal of Walter telling his sister. Right. Which he made him promise not to do. So I bet, I bet she browbeat him until he admitted it. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but, but then the bigger betrayal I think is her saying that Walter told him that. Right. You right. know, like husbands and wives sometimes share a thing. Yeah. Although there have been times 
where I found out years later that there was a thing that my wife didn't tell her because didn't tell me because someone swore her to secrecy. Wow. And I've done the same thing. You know, it depends on the circumstance, but right. I mean, if you told me something and said, please, please don't tell Karen this, I wouldn't tell Karen. That's good. And that occasionally there's something that doesn't go that way, but you know, um, <laughs> Oh, so in this scene, uh, PTA felt Adam Sandler's performance wasn't working and said he pulled him aside, which is, you know, that's what happens with the directors. Like, okay, this isn't quite right. And what he did was played him the music because John Bryan was composing music as wow. they were going. Yeah. And he played them, him the music and Adam listened to him. And this is what he said. Oh, I can actually do less. Wow. That right. is super smart. Super smart to understand where he can play within the lines as an actor. Damn. Right. Oh, that's incredible. I had the same exact reaction. <laughs> like that, that line made me more impressed with Adam Sandler than almost anything I've ever heard. Oh, I can actually do less. Yeah. And, and, and it's really true is that you could see in this scene, he's keeping it all inside yes. the tension. The tension is being created by the music and the action and how it's shot. It's not being created because we're seeing the actor do that much, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. It's like what you said about Emily Watson, you know, don't do anything. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about in this scene, because things keep coming at him. He's got mm -hmm. the phone calls repeating. He's got Luis Guzman asking his questions. He's got the sister bombarding him with stuff. He's got Lena coming in and out. The music is going. There's a lot of movement. I mean, there's even going to be a crazy huge accident that's going to happen in the middle of the scene. Oh, right. Yeah. Last week when we did 13 Assassins, I told you about the Jackie Chan uh, fight scene philosophy, which right. is that you you don't have just people standing around doing nothing, waiting for their turn to fight. You have people coming in from all angles, from off camera, so that mm -hmm. the character uh, is always surprised. They're always kind of behind the eight ball and have to right. react. Right. I totally think that's what's going on in the scene. Is it never gives Adam Sandler a moment to rest, to catch his breath. Hmm. It's always a new thing comes at him. Another new thing comes at him. Another new thing comes at him. Throughout, the, wow. I think this scene is so tense. Because there's just so much going on. Right, right. And in order to change the subject, he, he, he just tells Lance, like, to deal with something in Cleveland or something like that. <laughs> Toledo. 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 Yeah. Got to call and, that guy in Toledo. <laughs> and, and, of course, I don't think it means anything. I think it was just his way of avoiding what was going on oh, in the scene. A thousand percent. Yes. Yeah. But Lance is going, wait, oh, do you mean the guy in the Ramada Inn? Like, trying <laughs> to figure out what he's talking about. Um. Again, I wrote down my note is Luis is amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just watching him is so funny. His um, <laughs> and then Lena is back and she says it must be weird having so many sisters. And right in the middle of this, another call. Hang up again and see the trouble it's going to make. Thank you. What do you mean? Thank you. Business is good. You're busy. Yeah. Well, not really. I saw a picture of you. Oh, yes. It's a lot of family. It must be nice. Do you have brothers or sisters? No. I'm the exact opposite. That must be nice. That must be really, really, really. No, it's terrible. Dad, if you do, Dad, if you don't. That I, kind of situation. It makes sense. I wonder, I want to see that picture. What is the picture that Lena saw? That's a great point. What is that picture that got her to want to date Barry? And the phone is ringing and she asks, what's the pudding for? <laughs> then a forklift goes by and crashes. So where are you guys going to breakfast? How long have you worked with my sister? I mean, this is what I'm talking about, man. Yeah. Well, because she comes in, in essence, to shatter 
this very well-constructed life that he's living, but he doesn't want to live this life anymore. And he doesn't know how to break the patterns, how to shatter the depression in essence that he's in. And all this stuff is happening. It almost feels like he's some kind of, and you, you, you talked about this earlier, Steve, but I think it's profound. This idea, is it real or not real? This almost feels like his inner life is he's got this kind of superpower where he is subconsciously creating this madness around him to reflect uh, uh, what's going on inside of him. All the things that are being shattered here by having Lena come in, by having this woman on the phone try to try to intimidate him, by having his sister come in to try to get him to meet Lena. All this kind of stuff is happening all at the same time. And he is essentially kind of radiating this destruction around him. I, I think it's so interesting. That's why, because that's what I mean about this movie being subjective is that yeah. I think there's a way to think it could be this scene happens exactly how this happened. This is mm-hmm. just what happened. Sure. But it also could be that this is how it felt to him. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like all these things happened. It didn't actually happen this fast. It right. didn't happen all colliding with each other. But in his mind, in his mental state, that's how it all felt. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I, I love to because he continues talking after the forklift crash as if mm-hmm. nothing had happened, which is exactly <laughs> what he's doing in terms of the Georgia phone calls. Right. He is behaving as if that's not happening. Right. You know, Lena's a little concerned that someone got hurt and he does the most insincere <laughs> yell out. Hey, you guys. OK. <laughs> you know, Are you guys hurt. Are you OK? Yeah, OK. <laughs> we start talking about the fact that she travels a lot on business and, mm-hmm. and that she's going to Hawaii. And he's kind of like, well, I, I might go there. I might have business there. Well, if you're going to go, I'm probably not going to go though. Oh, that's, that's too bad. Cause it's so great over there. And if you were there, we could say hello to each other. Again, his just totally flat performance on this next line. Yes, that would be great, but I'm not exactly sure I have so much going on here. A lot depends on this thing. If it happens, I won't be able to go, but if it doesn't happen... I mean, it's just like totally dead. Well, let me ask you a question now. Why do you think he lies to her that he's going to Hawaii or his business in Hawaii or anything like that? Is that a nervous thing to try to be like, "Uh, yeah, me too, uh, to try to get out of the situation? Or does some piece of him want to be with her in Hawaii? Hawaii, I mean, he's trying to save up all this coupons to get these travel miles is there a piece of us oh my hawaii sounds like an escape a great place to go blah 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 i hadn't thought about it until you asked this but i think the interpretation of he's attracted to her and is you know maybe thinking about it i think that makes total sense Mm. what i actually think it is is i think it's like the blue suit is that it is him trying to put on an identity yeah that isn't him he wants right. to he wants to present an identity of a businessman who's going to diversify, who is going to get over the hump, who wears a suit to work and who <laughs> travels for work to Hawaii, you right. know. Right. But then we can't even really deal with the Hawaii moment because the sister comes in. And by the way, she comes in now where there's a snare drum with her that yeah. makes it even more forceful when she enters and a box falls in the background. <laughs> Lena says, nice meeting you. And then she's she's asking about the harmonium and about the pudding. And, <laughs> and as they're starting to walk out. Call me later and we can talk about asking Walter for the shrink. And he said you have this crying problem or something. Bye, Barry. And yells it out in front of Lena yeah. and all her work, his workmates. So again, these women have fucked this guy up from birth. Obviously very busy. I don't even know if he has time for a girlfriend. You might be right there, Steve. Okay. All right. I can see your point of view on this maybe 
maybe that is what's happening here. Maybe she's just doing it to make Lena happy, but it's confusing because then she's like, you know, I don't know why he's acting weird. I don't know why you want to date him. But then she's like, you got to date her. You got to do something. You got to get her. So she's a confusing person. Uh, uh, his sister. Well, I think that's, I think that's really, and and maybe we'll just, we're both right, which is that, mm. and maybe the ADHD thing is like the, it's really the thing is that she does want to help her brother. She also hates him on some level and she does want him to have a girlfriend. And then Elizabeth says, meet you at the restaurant. And she goes out of frame and we stay with Lena who goes to her car. She stops at her car. Mm-hmm. The camera pushes in as she looks back towards Barry, and then she walks back in. I'm going to go and eat tomorrow night. Do you want to go with me? Sure. Do you want to pick me up? Sure. Can I write down my address and phone number for you? Sure. Bro. Again, watch Luis Guzman. Yes, I was just going to say, <laughs> Luis Guzman's face right as soon as she walks in. And let me tell you what, she, what he's thinking. Uh, as, a, <laughs> as a Latino, let me tell you, he's like... Crazy white people. Crazy white people. That's all he's thinking because she's straight up like walking up and and he's just like leaning back and he's just like staring at her like, uh, okay. And the other Latino guys are there staring at there as well. Like this is unusual. Um, So it's, that's what I think is going on in that moment, which I think is brilliant. Just brilliant. Has he had a starring role in a movie? He's done straight to DVD stuff. Like, but he's never been like the star of a main film. No. Because he is, he you know, there's so many people who are these amazing character actors who are never not good. Yeah. Who you go, man, I wonder what a Luis Guzman movie would be, you know. There's so, because he, and he has such range. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I like that at the end of the scene, uh, Barry says, I didn't ask for a shrink. That must have been somebody else. Also, that pudding isn't mine. Also, I'm wearing a suit today because I had a very important meeting this morning and I don't have a crying problem. Okay. <laughs> does she believe any of that uh i think it's irrelevant whether she believes it because she doesn't care i think she sensed that he was who he was and maybe she realized from looking at that picture that like once again she found a guy who kind of she can understand almost inst- instinctively and so i don't think she cares about any of that shit uh, because she probably has her own weird shit as well which will find out later when they're talking about eating each other's faces off. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, of course we can never know. I think she right. knows all of it's a lie. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's not to me, it's not that she doesn't care about his weird shit. It's that she loves his weird shit. Oh, that's a great point. You yep. know what I mean? I yeah. think she is waiting for when he will tell her the truth. Right. That's when she, he really cares about her. They can yeah. surrender that to her. Yeah, Good point. exactly. Yeah. And she heads off, but we cannot. And that seems like a great moment. Really romantic, but we can't end the scene on a romantic note because no. the phone rings. This is Barry. You just made a fucking war for yourself that you can't afford. And then we go into this weird color space again with these weird sounds and weird noises. And we hear. How do you know this guy's rich? He said he was going to diversify. Diversify what? His business. And we go to Provo, Utah. Mm-hmm. And we see a woman who we realize this is Georgia. And we, there's a man that she's talking to who we don't see at first. And then we cut to where a band is playing. Check, check, one, two, test, test. And we're behind someone's head. You can't do that. It's wrong. Who is oddly familiar. <laughs> and then we come around and we see Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. 
picking what his favorite, my favorite performance of his is an impossible task because he's just always so good. Fair point. But this one is so different. <laughs> I just love him in this role. I mean, because he can play status, obviously, up and down the spectrum, right? Yeah. And certainly, Paul Thomas Anderson, in, in a way, kind of gave Philip Seymour Hoffman his real a, a kind of a, a, a boost to his career, obviously, because playing that character in... Um, in Boogie Nights. Yeah, and Boogie Nights kind of woke people up to what this guy's talent really is. So to compare that dude who is so awkward around Mark Wahlberg to this guy who is a lion marching around his little domain uh, is such a great change of uh, pace for him. Uh, and it's great to watch him. And I love how much he, he it's almost with relish that he enjoys playing this role. You remember we years and years ago when mm. we were doing our, our Kurosawa thing and we were talking about how Kurosawa saw things in Mifune and Takashi Shimura yeah. that they could play all these different kinds of parts and they could yeah. play the high status person and the low status person, the goofy person, the intense, they could do it all. Yeah. I think uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is the same thing in what he sees in Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, he's like, oh, so this guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Well, I want you to go right away. I think that's best. And I also really need you to check out a car for me down there at this guy's selling. And he gives them the key to the truck, but they have to gas it up. <laughs> and keep the receipts. And keep the receipts. Um, <laughs> this is not seeming like such a good deal for these guys, but I don't know what you make, you know, on welfare sitting around the house in Provo, Utah. Right, right. We're on the date. I came to drop my car off on purpose to try and meet you. Oh, my. I thought I should tell you I didn't want to get too far along on going out and be hiding something. Two things about this. If you're on a first date with someone yeah. and they say, I didn't want it to go so far and be hiding something, <laughs> that means that date is going places. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is a, a more serious thing to say. And the other thing that occurred to me is he's hiding everything. Yeah. How's your business going? Do you settle that pudding? And he gets very uncomfortable. The pudding is not a sales item. What was that? I'd rather not say if that's okay. I love her line. I'm sorry, was it like a secret pudding? <laughs> <laughs> She's so lovely and charming. Yeah, yeah. He looks around and in a very conspiratorial way, he tells about the pudding that it's 10 products for 500 miles and with a coupon, it's 1,000 miles. And the teriyaki chicken is $1.79, but it's 25 cents for a cup of pudding, but you can get a four pack and it has four individual barcodes, which means that for $250, you can get 500 miles and then double it to a thousand miles. If you were to spend $3,000, that would get you a million freaking flyer miles. You would never have to pay for a ticket the rest of your life. And this is based on a true story. Oh, yeah. There's a guy named David Phillips who found this error. It was Healthy Choice and American Airlines, and he got 1,253,000 frequent flyer miles from pudding. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the, 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 the to, so to go back to what made uh, Paul Thomas Anderson want to make this movie, I want to make a 90-minute film. I want to work with Adam Sandler. And I read about this pudding guy. <laughs> that's, that's what I know about how he came up with this film. You, you bought all that pudding so that you could get frequent flyer. I know, yes. That's insane. That word insane is a big word to hit him at this yep. moment. Yeah. And then this is where it goes bad. Because she says, my sister told me a funny story about you. 
Mm-hmm. And it ends up his sister told her about the sliding glass door and the hammer. Through the hammer. I don't remember doing that. <sighs> My sister's a liar. I have to go to the bathroom. This moment when you first see the movie is completely shocking. Yes. Walks into the bat- bathroom and just tears it apart. This is Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. This is, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I love the, that he tries to rip the soap off the wall and can't do it. <laughs> Again, a super hard cut from right in the middle of all this destruction back to him at the table. And we hear, can I talk to you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> this guy is so polite considering yeah. the circumstances. Yes. Sir, the bathroom was just torn apart. Yeah. Did you do it? No. You didn't just smash up the bathroom? No. Well, who did? I don't know. Sir, your hand is bleeding. I love this answer. I cut myself. How? On my knife. <laughs> it's just so funny and awkward. And I love that it just escalates. I didn't do I'm going to have to ask you to leave. All right, please don't do this to me. Sir, I'm going to call the police. All right. Can I just stay? Sir, I'm going to crack your fucking head open. <laughs> And Adam Sandler comes and says, we should go. I don't like it here. <laughs> this whole next shot, again, it's all one shot. There's so many wonders in this movie that it's hard. I'm not going to, I can't mention them all, but yeah. this one is great. The camera is up above the railing behind the booth and they get up and it tracks with them around the corner as they walk out past the railing, out of the restaurant, out into the street. And anytime you go from an interior location to an exterior location, lighting is really, really difficult because mm. if it, if the lighting is wrong, it'll blow out or it'll go to dark. And I don't know, like I know in the Copacabana shot in Goodfellas, mm. they actually had to rack the, the aperture. Like frequently you rack focus, which means, you know, you change the focal length from something that's close to something that's far. Right. That happens all the time in moving shots because the distance between the subject and the camera is always changing so you have to have someone who's the first ac on the focus ring right rarely do you rack exposure because that's a lot harder to do but maybe they did it on this they end up outside and they're just kind of walking and it's kind of lovely Mm -hmm. and romantic there is a truck that's behind them it is the same truck that almost hit the harmonium in the first scene oh wow i didn't even catch that and the truck of course what colors are on the truck it's white with red and blue writing right the car dealership they're walking by is red and blue. You know what I didn't notice? I don't know if that's the same car dealership that he's running by later on in the movie. It might be. Oh, good point. I, I bet it is. I bet it is. But I didn't I didn't look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that he opens her door for him. Mm-hmm. And then we're driving and they're laughing. The light is very blue. They talk about the harmonium. Did you steal that from the street? And, and he at first is awkward because he is used to women accusing him of things. Oh, good point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Why is it yours? No, it's yours. Because she likes that he took it from the street. We cut to, we skip a whole, it's like we skip a whole bunch of stuff and we're at the end of the date. Yeah. And they're on the couch and he says, okay, I'm going to go. Good to see you again. And gets up and they walk to the door and then he kisses her cheek and her performance is perfect because you could see she wanted to kiss him. Yes. Have a good trip and bye-bye. (laughs) <laughs> and then walking down the hall beating himself up for the bye-bye as most men do on an awkward first date when you really like the person and you say you don't know what to do in that moment you beat yourself up afterwards yeah oh yeah i i i haven't had i didn't have very many awkward first dates but rest assured i beat myself up at the end of all of them. 
<laughs> and then he's almost at the door and someone says, are you Barry? And I don't know what your first reaction is. My first reaction is, oh, shit, this is the guys from Provo, Utah, and he's about to get the shit kicked out of him. Uh, that was my thought. Oh, OK. But, but that's not, of course, what it is. Right. There's a phone call for him. And it's Lena. And this line is amazing. I just wanted you to know, whatever you're going or whatever you're doing right now, I want you to know that I wanted to kiss you just then. This is also where I go like, is this, is she a fantasy? You know, I think now in retrospect in 2021, we can say, is she like a fan, a male fantasy creation of a character? Right. Cause we never get her backstory much uh, until Barry gets on the phone and asks her about when's the last time she had her boyfriend and married and all that. But like she is presented as this kind of salvation for him. So I can see people having an issue with it, but I also like that it, this is a movie and we can have a little fantastical moments. And she realized, I think when she goes back in to ask him, essentially ask him out in front of his coworkers in front of Luis Guzman and them, she realizes she has to be the aggressor here. And that she can be because he is, he doesn't have a mean bone in his body towards her. And so she can take these kinds of chances to reveal her feelings and it allows him to open up. Do you know what I'm saying? She yeah. understands that if she opens up, he will feel more safe to open up with her. Right. So, yeah. I think the movie is the movie. So I don't think she's a fantasy exactly. I think right. the movie is the movie, but I also think the movie is somewhat symbolic and somewhat it's like it's like if you're watching a Beckett play where mm -hmm. people are not behaving in a way that's realistic, yeah. that that is how they're behaving in the world that Beckett is creating. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like yeah. this to me is the same thing. I, I think, you know, this person, she is the person who looked at a picture, fell in love with the person she saw in the picture. And normally, if you fall in love with the visual image of someone, that is not their reality. Right. You know, they're they're a person. They have flaws and they're they're not what they look like on the outside. Yeah. For whatever reason, she looked at that picture and understood Barry mm -hmm. flaws and all and fell in love with him, not despite his flaws, but partially because of them. You know, yeah. but yeah. doesn't see them as flaws. You know, she yeah. sees them as awesome. I also think, though, what's weird is, you know, the 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 Madonna horror thing. Oh, the, yeah. That yeah. concept. That's this movie. You have mm -hmm. Georgia. And you have Lena, you have the yeah. sisters and you have Lena, you have the awful women and you have the angel, the mm -hmm. perfect woman, you yeah, know, true. Um, and then he goes to, but he can't go back to her room, her apartment, but can't find it. Yeah. It's beautifully filmed him running around him looking at the numbers and running up and down <laughs> the hallways and going downstairs and almost out into the street and then back upstairs it's just a totally small thing with my students. They are almost all the time shooting in the hallways of boring Los Angeles apartment buildings. Oh, I'm sorry. Because that's where they live. I mean, you know, yeah. how are they going to get a better location? So I have seen so many movies in hallways like this one. And this movie is proof that you can make the boring Los Angeles apartment building. So visually thrilling because mm -hmm. it is, this sequence yep. is gorgeous, even though the location you would think it's not interesting. Yeah. Finally finds his door, rings the doorbell, and the music is romantic, and there is just a great, great kiss. He's out of breath when he runs in there. Yeah. And then he says, I don't freak out very often. 
No matter what my sister says, okay? This is twice now that he is justified. Or actually, maybe three times, because in the in the restaurant as well, yeah. where he's kind of presented something that isn't really true. And she's gone, okay. He's walking along a white wall after parking his car. There's We hear tire squeals, and he is grabbed and thrown in the back of a pickup truck. There's just an f- amazing shot of one of the guys in front of the 99-cent store, and then the camera pulls back, revealing the second guy and revealing the third guy. It's just a cool shot. He takes 500 bucks out of his ATM. That's the maximum. This is what you get when you're a pervert. Said you'd help somebody out and you didn't. So we're just going to take this money back to her. It's like he did. And he says, I didn't say no to her. I declined. Yeah. (laughs) And then this fourth guy comes out of nowhere and is coming clearly to punch him. And he says, no, no, please. And I love that he says, ow, ow. Yeah. Before he gets hit. Ow, 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 Which... You imagine this is him reverting back to high school or middle school, right? When he used to get beat up, probably by other guys who thought it was weird, who thought yeah. it was different. Because men are, or, I mean, sorry, young men are such so emotionally stunted at times in those uh, in those days. And so they see someone who's different and they immediately call him a freak. They want to beat him up because they can't understand him. They have to destroy it. So in that moment, you see him kind of reverting back. And it yeah. does such a great job, Sandler. Because, I mean, when you juxtapose this later on when he fucking kill, uh, beats the shit out of these, totally. guys, of these guys, it's a great change because immediately he's punched to the ground. He, he kind of like focuses in on the license plate, which includes him into where they're at, by the way, which right. is a clue later on. And then he and then he just I think he just kind of gets up and starts running away so as, as he would. You know? the, every single shot in the sequence of him running is cool. I won't oh describe God. them, but they're just so cool. And then there's this totally, at the end of it, there's this totally weird, weird moment where he runs and just dives straight off a high thing yeah. and then appears down below running away, which is obviously it's the body double. Yeah. But like, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand. It seems totally bizarre, uh, but it's a really cool moment. And then he's running right down the middle of the street. Again, the, the, the colors from the car dealership in the background are red and blue. And the truck comes up next to him and it's like, Where the fuck are you going? We know where you live. <laughs> also, uh, I want to throw something out there, Steve, because as we're watching his running to all these different places, he starts to take on the sounds of a trapped animal. Yeah, totally. Right? And I think this is I think this was probably a direction by Anderson or maybe an instinctive decision by Sandler as an actor in this character. It's like he almost becomes primal in that moment just to survive. He's yeah, devolving totally into yeah, some kind of uh, yeah, so it's like animals. So it's like great to see, and the sound. Ah, ah, ah. Like it's almost not human what he's saying. But I tell you, as someone who got beat up as a kid through a majority of my life till I was fifteen years old, I know those sounds. I know that feeling. I know the desperation to run into an alley and hope they don't find you there, or run into the backyard, or run it through a shortcut. Uh, th- those are the things I did through a majority of my life from, I don't know, when I was eight to till I was 14, 15 years old. So it's a horrible feeling. You're so embarrassed. You're so ashamed afterwards of how you reacted to it all. But, and you feel helpless and powerless. It's the worst. You know, it just occurred to me. Yeah. So much of his character is about hiding his sins. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? 
the hammer or it, it just having people find out that he's weird, that he's different, yeah. that he's angry, that he freaks out, that he yeah. cries, that he, and what is the biggest thing? You know, he called a sex line and now that is coming to expose him. We're back at work. He calls Luis Guzman into his office. It's almost like he's going to actually confide in him. Cause the first thing he says is I got in trouble last night. Oh, a little bit what of trouble. Happened? I made a phone call. Like he's about to say, yeah. But then he sees the pudding <laughs> and he smiles at the pudding and the line better get more pudding <laughs> mm. the, right in this moment. Again, because we're always going to be interrupted that we hear there was a call from the sister about smashing the windows. I'm going to go out of town. I'm going to go out of town for two days. Where are you going, Barry? I have to go to Hawaii, but you You're can't tell my sister. Hawaii? Yeah, that don't is so wonderful. You Just make sure Hawaii. you don't tell my sister. And Luis is like. That's great. You want to go on a trip because he actually cares about it. You know, he does. Yeah. And I have to get more pudding for this trip to Hawaii. As I just said that out loud, I realized it sounded a little strange, but it's not. So would you like to come with me? Okay. And we cut to the 99 cent store and he's let Lance in on the scheme. Yeah. We, he actually grabs like the whole display case of the, <laughs> of the pudding. We're at a different store and Lance is getting pudding off the shelf and Adam Sandler starts to dance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the inspirations for this film is the old MGM musicals. Yeah. And what Paul Thomas Anderson said is he says he wanted it to feel like a musical with no one ever breaking into song. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. It's a musical I, without being a musical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things he did was in terms of color and saturation, because the film stocks are really different today than they were in the 40s, 50s, when MGM's making all those films. And so he spent a lot of time trying to get that level of color saturation to make it look like that old school kind of musical. Yeah, And he's just giddy now. It's like, it's going to work. And Lance is just like, I'll be online. (laughs) (laughs) But this is, and Lance, I'm sure, has dealt with this so much. Yeah, for years. Yeah, because I mean, apparently he may, this business makes money. So Lance makes money. He can feed his kids. Certainly there's people... Uh, they're the who he probably picked out every person that's working there. They're probably friends of his or whatever. Uh, so he has kind of an auto- autonomy in that place and equality with Barry in that place. Uh, so him going to get the pudding and stuff and helping him out, but he's dealt with Barry's weird shit all the time. So he just rolls on, right? Not a big deal. But I also find this to be an interesting microcosm of the the mentality of Barry, Steve, because we have Barry running away, primal. These guys say, "We know where you live. Where the fuck are you going?" When they confront him as they're driving past, which stops him, uh, and he then runs to the pudding because the pudding is a place of escape. The pudding is her. The pudding is the possibility right. to be with her. So his giddiness, his dancing around yeah. is a way of escaping this other real thing that is happening in his life. Uh, these people who want to beat him and take his money. Yeah, absolutely. That's t- I totally 100% agree. There is one problem, John. Yeah. It takes six to eight weeks to process the coupons for the miles. It's nowhere on the package that it says six to eight weeks, Steve. What the hell? I, I, I don't know what to tell you, sir. <laughs> you know, we've seen him have a lot of angry reactions. Yeah. This might be the, the angriest because he yes. punches that wall. I punched walls at a certain age in my life. Oh, sure, sure. And my guess is you punched a wall. <laughs> it sure. usually doesn't work out well. Mm, yeah. It's not usually a good choice. <laughs> I love that after that, he's like, 
touching the the harmonium with the bruised hand, you yes. know, from punching okay. the wall. I've seen people um, in the, over the years compare the harmonium to 2001, to the monolith in 2001. Huh. This, I, which symbolizes evolution, right? Which symbolizes sure. And and so the harmonium is a place he comes to for solace, but also a symbol of his evolution, like of moving out of this place in his life to something that's better, right? Or might be better. Um, right. And I feel in this moment, I think it's never more clearer that that comparison makes sense uh, than in this moment. He goes out to talk to Lance. I love that right when he walks out to talk to him, Lance is sitting down and then the chair just randomly breaks. Oh! <laughs> and we kind of ignore that yeah. and basically he's going to go and he'll take care of the pudding and we start to hear the music of a song that is one of the strangest choices that works so well which yeah. is Shelley Duvall singing He Needs Me from the Robert Altman film Popeye Anderson said he put this in the film because he's a massive Altman fan. Mm. And so this was his homage to Altman to use this music. And I would argue that this song works so much better in this movie than it does in Popeye. Well, I would argue that this is a much better movie than Popeye. <laughs> oh, fair, fair, fair. I think everything. Although when, when I was a kid, I love Popeye. Oh like it, it combined two of my favorite things. It combined Robin Williams, who was yeah. my favorite comedian, like I, Mork and Mindy was my favorite show at mm. the height of his comedic Robin Williamness with yep. Popeye, which I watched. I love Popeye cartoons. So yeah. I, I thought this was a great movie. I, I haven't watched it in 20 years. I would be very curious to watch it today. Yeah, might be an interesting live live show one day. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, he runs <laughs> down the hallway in the airport. And again, he's in the blue suit. The carpet is blue. The people that take his tickets are red. He ends up on a plane, never been on a plane before. It's very cute. Gets to the Honolulu airport, walking at first. He starts to run, gets in a cab, says, can you take me to where the beaches and hotels are? And I'm going to need a phone. <laughs> and then he's on the street. A crazy parade is going by. Again, this is where it's really looking like an MGM musical. And he is on the phone calling his sister. Yeah. A, he just lies to her continuously. He says, he's just, where are you? He says, I'm at work. I'm like, dude, there's a parade yeah. next to you. She's not going to believe that. And he tries to tell her that he left the pocketbook at my work mm -hmm. and he wants to get it back to her. Oh my God. I know exactly where she's staying and you're fucking lying. You didn't forget her purse or a pocketbook. What do you want her number for? Don't do this to me. What do you want her number for? Oh. This is such a great moment. Tell me why. Do you There's like no her? reason for you to treat me this way. You like her? You're killing me. You're killing me with the way you are towards me. And his ramp up in anger is so amazing. Oh, All God. I want is a fucking number. That should be goddamn good enough for you. Now give me the fucking number. Okay. You fucking hear me? Yes. I'm sick of this fucking shit. Stop fucking treating me this way. Give me a fucking number. I'll fucking kill you. You want that? I'm gonna kill. I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> I mean, that is. I mean, frankly. He's a scary person. He can be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And this is where I go like, what has happened with, with particularly this sister, this, you know? Yeah. 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 But I think with her, I think she's the one that cares about him the most out of I agree. all of yeah. them, but which is why she can affect him deeper than the other ones can. And you know, their chemistry between them both are fantastic as actors, but yeah, this phone call back and forth, Steve, as it escalates, it's so fucking crazy. 
Yeah. Well, and it's like the dude that has violent outbursts and breaks things mm-hmm. and has recently done that. Yeah. When he yells, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> that's scary, you know? Yeah. Um, but then there's again cut and where he's totally different tone because he's calling the hotel. Yeah. Asks for his her, her room, gets a man, <laughs> calls again, and gets her. Yeah. And and again, he lies to her. I'm standing in my hotel room. Yeah. Dude, you're on the street next to a parade. <laughs> Bad lie. And I love that he starts to interrogate her about boyfriends and where mm-hmm. is she from and was she married? And finally she goes, do you want to meet me and talk about this stuff? Yeah. And he continues to, he just says, where are you from originally? <laughs> and then we cut to a hotel with pink pillars. And I swear to God, I looked at the pink pillars and I went, I've been there. Yeah. This is the uh, Royal Hawaiian. And I was there when I was five years old mm. and I, I recognized wow. it. So, and I had to check with my mom. I texted my mom. I was like, did we stay where, where did we stay when we went to Hawaii with my grandparents when I was a little kid? Right. And that is where we stayed at that hotel. Wow. And we're still he, hearing he needs me. It's gone on forever. This song. Yeah. Yeah. And he walks into the lobby and we see her and she runs up the stair and the camera is pushing in on Barry as he's walking forward with his hand outstretched for a handshake. <laughs> it pushes him on, on her as she's running forward and she doesn't shake his hand. She collides with him in a romantic kiss. I love that he goes, oof. oof. <laughs> and then it's the perfect musical romantic yeah. kiss moment. Great shot composition by Paul Thomas Anderson as they are there in silhouette and other people are walking by them on both sides. Feels like something you'd see in a musical. So it's just, just perfect. Yeah. It's, it, it's gorgeous. Everything, you know, they're silhouetted. The mm. crowds are walking by in front of them and behind them. Her leg lifts up. They move right in. And it's the poster too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely fantastic shot. The cinematographer is Robert Elswit and mm. you know, it's beautiful. Yeah. I, and this is one where I really wonder the collaboration between a cinematographer and a director, sometimes the cinematographer is really picking the shots, is really doing the mm. lighting and doing the, the line share of the work. And the director is really working with actors and really working on the script or they're more interested in post or in other things. And sometimes the director is super, super involved with every single choice in terms of camera. My guess is Paul Thomas Anderson is the latter. Yeah, yeah. It's nighttime. People are eating at tables. There's a performance going on of, you know, classically Hawaiian sort of music. Mm. The camera moves through the tables to find Barry and Lena sitting at a table with the ocean behind them. Absolutely gorgeous. Really looks like Hawaii here. (laughs) (laughs) And then she just slowly gets up and walks away, I would say, demurely. And he follows behind and the camera is behind them past the torches the music is beautiful there's almost a perfect cut to them now walking towards camera in the hallway yeah and as they walk way down the hallway the we iris in on them in this circle that then tracks their hands because he has reached out and held her hand yeah then we're in bed mm-hmm. and they're kissing and he first thing he says is i'm sorry i forgot to shave and she says your face is so adorable your skin I want to bite your cheek and 
you think about the dialogue that's about to happen, John? I love it because I'll tell you the honest truth. Uh, I know I found my Lena because that's what my girlfriend does every day. Lindley loves to chew on my fucking cheeks, both sides. (laughs) Literally, she will just go, give me those cheeks. I want to chew those cheeks off your face. And so... (laughs) I let her do it, and I have no problem with it because I know it's it's her way of expressing her love for me. And now I don't want to take a sledgehammer to her face or anything, but, but there are moments where I hug her really tight when we're uh, cuddling in bed or whatever, and it's my way of the same thing, and she she loves it. So, you know, everyone's got their weird shit, man. Everyone's got their weird shit, but it's how she shows me she loves me. She just actually, before we came back from our break, she was gnawing on my cheeks. Oh. <laughs> I think this dialogue is amazing because yeah. I think it's like acceptance. You know yes. what I mean? Of each other. Yeah. Of yeah. each other's it's, weirdness. Yeah. The, the fact that he says, I'm looking at your face and I just want to smash it. I just want to fucking smash it with a sledgehammer and squeeze it. You're so pretty. And then she ups it yeah. to, <laughs> I want to chew your face. I want to scoop out your eyes and I want to eat them and chew them and suckle them. <laughs> because... Yeah, he's this person with all of this anger and mm-hmm. violence and 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 shit in him, yeah. and he's been hiding it forever. And even though this is playful and he doesn't actually want to hit her face with a sledgehammer, yeah. there's this way that it's like some truth. And he's I love that he just says, "This is funny. This is nice." <laughs> yeah. And then because for the maybe this is the first time in his life. He feels safe, I think. Mm-hmm. He says, I can't rest when I beat up the bathroom. I'm sorry. And she embraces him. Yep. It's beautiful. It's bright daylight, and Lena is on the phone and talking to the sister about some business thing. Yeah. And the sister says, did my brother call you? And she says, no. Really sorry that didn't work out. No, it's fine. I mean, you wouldn't want to go out with him anyway. Honestly, he's such a freak sometimes. But then Lena responds, kind of agreeing with her, and then her his sister pushes back and goes, "Now wait a minute, you don't have to say that. He's not that much of a freak." It's the weird thing within families where I can criticize yeah. my brother or my sister, but if someone on the outside criticizes the criticizes them, I'm going to come after them uh, because you don't know them the way I know my brother or my sister the way I do, you know. And so I love that she still defends him with all the fucked up way she treats him. She still cares about him and defends him from Lena's comments. I think, you know, we started off an hour ago saying, or whenever we started this yeah. conversation, that we're probably going to have to agree to disagree about the sister. I am now 100% convinced that we are both completely right. <laughs> yeah, in our, in our own ways. Well, yeah. yeah, that she absolutely does want him to be happy. She does want him to have a girlfriend. She does want him to do things. And she absolutely doesn't want Lena to date him and thinks of him as a freak and is, you know, all that's all there. Right. It's both are happening at the same time. So why'd you have to go? For what? For work. I don't have any business here. I came here for you. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Because again, you feel safe. Oh, and sorry. He's he's on a payphone. Gets Georgia's dirty message answering machine. Yes, this is Barry Egan. I am calling in regards to what took place the other night. I just wanted to tell everybody, I, I know it was not fair what you did to me, and I am expecting my money back. I realize you have my home phone number. I'm away on vacation right now. If you guys want to reach me shortly, I will be uh, home, and um, we can discuss how you can return my money. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure that uh, the police can be contacted, and I, and I could do that, and I feel like 
it's it's warranted so um let's 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 figure something out um uh like i said i'll be home i'll be home shortly give me a call okay thank you now what do you think he does this he's got her he's got lena he's got the possibility for more is it that he needs the money back or is it that lena has given him this strength to that's what i think stand up for himself yeah i think it's the latter okay I think that's, that's my feeling. Yeah. I mean, I do think 500 bucks means a fair amount to this guy. Right. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. We're in the waiting room for the airplane and he asks, how many planes have you been on? She says, oh, maybe over a (laughs) hundred. And then she says, can I come home with you when we get there? Of course. Is it okay to ask that? I thought that you were anyways. Kind of vibing together. Yeah, yeah, I love it. There's the light as the garage door opens and they pull out in the car and immediately hit from behind. It's a great shot interior when they spin. Fantastic. Yeah. The in, the inhales of breath as they're spinning, both of them. And they're not screaming. They're not yelling. They're just absorbing what's happening. Yeah. And he looks over at her and she's looking at him somewhat in shock. Yeah. And then you see a drip. Oh, yeah. Of blood from her eye. Oh, man. And the change in Barry. Yep. Is fucking beautiful. Just fucking beautiful. For once, at least in our experience with him, he's going to use this rage for good. Yeah. You know? yeah. He gets out of the car. I love that he buttons his jacket as he yep. gets out of the car. Because <laughs> he's going to work, son. Yeah. And that and the guy's coming towards him, thinking oh. that he's the same scared guy that they met a few days ago. Yeah. That first punch is huge. Yeah. We don't even see how he got the tire iron, but he got the tire iron, flips it in his hand, takes another guy out, and then kicks and takes a third guy out, like in a you know, an action movie. Yeah. Smashes the back window on the truck, and then he hands the tire iron to the guy cowering in the truck. The same guy who had punched him yeah. to the ground before. Now that little bitch is cowering in the trunk. I love it. Or in the back, rather. And we cut to an examination. She's fucking angelic. She's fucking angelic. Still. Yeah. Dad he, shot her. Totally. And he's kind of rocking back and forth mm-hmm. and starts to move away. <laughs> and then the camera stays with him. And then he runs down the hall. You said your name was Georgia. You said our conversation was confidential. And I trusted you. And then you called me. You asked me for money. Am I right? Am I right? Get your supervisor on the phone. Whoever owns that place. I want him on the phone. Do you hear me? And her reaction to this guy is totally different from how she was dealing with him before. Yep. Because she can hear in his voice that something changes. No, no, no. This is bad. Shut up. Will you shut up? Because Dean is 100% confident. Yeah. What's your name, sir? Answer me. What's your name, asshole? I'm Barry Egan. How do I know? You could be anybody. You're a bad person. You have no right taking people's confidence in your service. You understand me, sir? (laughs) I love love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Shut up! Shut the fuck up! You have no right to take people's confidence. Shut up! Will you shut up? Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! And Barry is like grunting you know he's so angry back in the hospital lena asks if the guy in the blue suit is around the corner and the nurse says yeah the police want to take your statement that's not who she meant she didn't mean the police Mm -hmm. we're back to barry who's with the phone 
yeah. walks out of his office, the phone cord dangling behind him. Um, he goes back to the hospital. She's gone. Yeah. He calls directory assistance and he puts it together. D and D mattress man in Utah. And we cut to again, these weird colors and stuff, strings in the music. This reminded me of vertigo, Mm. you know, like the weird fantasy sequence in vertigo. Yeah. Yeah. There's the wide shot of the mattress store. Barry walks towards it. (laughs) Georgia is doing Dean's hair inside. (laughs) And then they turn and they look and we don't see what they're looking at. And then the camera moves and there is Barry backlit in just a heroic shot. It's a Western standoff. Totally. It's awesome. And at first Dean is going to bully him. We've seen Dean be completely powerful throughout this whole film. Yep. And that is not what's going to happen. Nope. I have so much strength in me, you have no idea. And they're almost nose to nose. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. <laughs> I would say that's that mattress, man. And Dean says, you came all the way from L.A. to tell me that? Yes, I did. And there's a pause. All right. That's that. And he turns and walks away. And then I love as, as Barry is leaving, he tries to regain his power. Yeah. Yep. And yells, now get the fuck out of here, pervert. Barry turns back. He's still holding the phone, John. Yeah, yes, 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 he is. Didn't I warn you? Th- that's that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he shoves the phone into the employee's chest and walks yeah. out. Back at work, he runs in. Lance asks if he's okay. He runs through the place, says, I'm fine. He grabs the harmonium and we're in the hallway, in Lena's hallway. He's panting. He rings the doorbell. She opens it. She's in the red dress. You know, we've had a lot of romantic speeches on the cinephiles. Mm -hmm. This is a really good one. Yeah, it is. I'm so sorry. I left you at the hospital. I called the phone sex line. I called the phone sex line. Before I met you, and four blonde brothers came after me, and they hurt you, and I'm sorry. And then I had to leave again because I wanted to make sure you never got hurt again. And and I have a lot of pudding, and in six to eight weeks it can be redeemed. So if you could just give me that much time, I think I can get enough mileage. To go with you wherever you have to go if you have to travel for your work because I don't ever want to be anywhere without you so could you just let me redeem the mileage and she says you left me at the hospital you can't do that if you just give me six to eight weeks I can redeem the mileage and I can go with you wherever you have to travel and the music builds and it builds and they kiss and she holds him, and then we're back at work, and she walks in silhouetted past the plungers. She's in red. He's playing the harmonium. She stands behind him, puts her hands on his shoulders, kind of embraces him as the camera pushes in, and she says, So here we go. What does so here we go mean? What's here we go together. Let's see what happens. Our next adventure, this relationship. Here we go. Yeah. Um, and if you've listened to the song off the soundtrack, here we go. The lyrics are incredible. It's all about finding the person whose uh, fucked up stuff seems normal to you and your fucked up stuff seems normal to them. Yeah. It's brilliant, brilliant kind of bookend to this moment. 
it was disappointing at the box office. It made 17 million US, uh, about 25 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won for best director at Cannes and was nominated for the Palme d'Or. Yeah. Sandler was nominated for the Golden Globe. And that is all the information I have on the reception yeah. of this yeah. film. Um, why don't I give my final thoughts first? Sure. I think, first of all, Paul Thomas Anderson can make more with less than almost any director I can take up. He has a way of making you feel tense just through sound and picture, mm-hmm. totally de- devoid of what the story is or what the characters are going through. He just, the way he moves that camera around and the sound field that we're in just creates so much tension and emotion. Mm-hmm. I think Adam Sandler's performance is amazing. I continue to speculate about what this film means, but I also go to that line of, I don't know how other people are. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that it's almost like it makes the internal life of this troubled person external. That's mm-hmm. how I feel about it is that mm-hmm. whether it's a fantasy or subjective or just, this is all what happens. It just, I am feeling so much of what this person is feeling throughout this film. And I think that's really powerful. How about you? We've seen so many films about romance that were guys that we could relate to, to a degree, but were in their own way, fantastical interpretations of men. Uh, Like if you look at when Harry met Sally, you know, Billy Crystal is this guy who's very successful, but he's kind of closed off. He's kind of dark a little bit because he reads the last page of a book, but he's a sexual machine you know i made a woman meow uh we've seen Cary grant we've seen you know channing tatum we've seen um uh dax shepherd for lack of a better term but we've also seen so many good-looking standard guys in romantic comedies and in romantic films john cusack in serendipity what have you but this is a film about people who are not these good-looking the most accomplished blah 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 and they've got some inner turmoil it is, and, and some real uh, struggles with, with panic attacks and anxiety. And I love that there's romantic films for these people too, because these people do find love as well. Uh, you know, I have some instincts, as Steve pointed out, I have some connective tissues with Barry Egan in this movie, uh, with Barry's character in this movie. And I found finally my Lena and that's the thing. It can happen. We all have, have our fucked up shit and we all have these journeys we have to go on. And it was about time in 2002 that somebody made a movie uh, about romance that didn't star people that we would normally feel a connective tissue to and feel like they're the normal person trying to find love. This is a very unusual person that also deserves love, also deserves to be accepted for who they are and maybe changed by this experience, uh, both of them. Uh, and I think right. that's the power of this movie is that it represents a new, more realistic approach to love to a degree. And all, I know it's fantastical elements, but still realistic in terms of the messed up natures that we all have within us and that they, that those people deserve love as well. And if some of you feel a very affinity, a very strong affinity for Barry or Lena, depending on which way you, 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 you fall there, you deserve love as well. And I think that's the power of this movie, that it can happen. It can happen if you are open to it. 
So that's what we think of Punch Drunk Love. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Please visit our Facebook page, do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube. Please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. Leave your comments on YouTube. You can buy or stream Punch Drunk Love on our website, cinephiles.net, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. You can support the show on Patreon and and suggest your own film, just like Punch Drunk Love. And that's at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at cine underscore files on Instagram at the cinephiles podcast. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always reach me at the Roka says on Twitter and on Instagram and uh, come on over to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash John Roka says you can check out my new show enterprise incidents with Scott and Steve, my partnership with Scott Mance to go through every single episode of the original series, original Star Trek series in production order. And I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time for another great film on the cinephiles.